This is the SFNSF podcast for October 2019, a special evening with Garth Nix, and now your moderator of SFNSF, Terry Bisson. Well, welcome. I think um, I don't need to make a lot of introductions to this character. Um, he's not only a New York Times bestseller, he's an international bestseller, and he's a generous colleague and a compatriot to all of us who love fantasy and science fiction. And he's here from Sydney, Australia. If you know, you probably know enough to know that his, he wrote Keys to the Kingdom, he wrote The Seventh Tower, The Old Kingdom, and he's done also a lot of other stuff in the field, which we'll talk about after we finish this first portion. But um, I would like to say he's not only a prolific, respected, and important writer, he also reads. So, Garth Nix. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. I was, uh, I was kind of wondering who you're talking about there for a second, but, uh, but thank you. It's very nice to be here in the American Bookbinders Museum too. My mother is a papermaker, uh, so I grew up with a studio full of many similar kinds of devices as you, as you see here, very large uh, presses and so on, all of which were an absolute nightmare when uh, they eventually got to move. Uh, moving an 1897 press that weighs three tonnes is uh, no, no small thing. I was very impressed uh, that apparently some of the exhibits here have to be moved for us to fit in. I was thinking, wow. So it's fantastic to be here in the American Bookbinders Museum. And uh, as I said on, on Twitter earlier, I hope nothing that's bound within those books breaks those bindings tonight while we are here. Um, my new book is Angel Mage. It came out yesterday uh, here in America and, and in Australia. It has some... Thank you. Uh, the beautiful cover is by a Californian artist, Victor Nagai. Uh, it, it's a really, really wonderful cover, uh, depicting the icons that the characters in this book use to summon angels. Angels can be, you can make icons to summon angels and then direct them to use their powers uh, as, as you will. Uh, but of course, there is a cost to doing so. And angels, uh, Angels vary in strength and power and also in their scope, what they can actually do. From very small, insignificant angels uh, who can do things like one of them can send a small frisson of pleasant expectation. That's all it does. And, and you would normally employ that to, to send to a lover or a friend to give them the idea that something nice was going to happen later uh, to the archangels who can do almost anything uh, at great cost. Um, I, never, I don't believe in elevator pictures, and I never worked them out, uh, but I did actually work one out in retrospect for Angel Mage a few days ago, mainly courtesy of other people talking about the book online and uh, putting together a bunch of different descriptions. I thought what, what sums up the book quite well is the description that it is the three musketeers crossed with Joan of Arc, crossed with angelic magic, crossed with kick-ass women characters. I thought, yeah, that kind of sums it up. Um, it's certainly very much uh, influenced by Alexandre Dumas, The Three Musketeers, 
And actually, Dumas in general is one of my favourite authors, but The Three Musketeers in particular. And also my favourite film adaptations of uh, The Three Musketeers, the two films made by uh, the Salkin brothers, directed by Richard Lester, uh, which from the 1970s, which, which starred uh, Oliver Reed and Michael York, Charlton Heston as Cardinal Richelieu, uh, Geraldine Chaplin as the Queen, and so on. Wonderful, wonderful films. A brilliant script by George MacDonald Fraser, a writer who I also like very much. Uh, so as much inspired by those filmic representations as, as by the book um, by Dumas. Uh, but it's not a retelling of The Three Musketeers. It is, in fact, a story inspired by The Three Musketeers. It set, takes place in an alternate 17th century uh, in an invented world. Uh, which has lots of similarities with 17th century Europe, but is not the same. Uh, one of the key differences is that it is a, a place of gender equality. So there are women who are cardinals and musketeers and everything else, um, as it should be. Uh, and it's an adventure story, a high fantasy, and I guess I should read a little bit from it to, uh, to give you a taste of the book. Uh, and what I thought I'd do is I'd actually read a few short sections because... The story is mainly about uh, a woman, a young woman called Liliath, who is actually the antagonist of the story. Uh, she is an angelic mage, an angel mage of unparalleled power. Uh, she destroyed one kingdom more than 100 years ago trying to do something and is believed to be gone and dead, uh, but she's not. And uh, she comes back at the beginning of this book in order to try again to do what she set out to do before uh, because her plan was not, in fact, to kill almost everybody and to give a terrible plague to those who were left that made them into monsters. Uh, funnily enough, people often don't have that kind of plan. But you know, um, So I'm going to introduce her. And then there are four key characters that she needs to bring together and to manipulate to achieve her goal. And I'm going to read a little bit to introduce each of those characters as well. Uh, so this is an introduction to Liliath, and I'm skipping the prologue because that sets the scene 100 years earlier. You can always have a prologue. Do not believe the internet. It's what you do with prologues that counts. That's the, uh, the, firm, the firm warning against prologues often comes from a misunderstanding of what they're supposed to do. Uh, there's so much internet writing advice that says, do not have a prologue. No, you must never have a prologue. Is that a prologue? No, get rid of it at once. You can have them if, if you know what to do with them. That's what I tell myself anyway. <laughs> so introducing Liliath. And uh, this is, this is uh, underneath a temple where a very old monk is keeping the vigil uh, called Brother Delphon. He slumped now no more than half awake. So it took him some several seconds to notice that he was no longer alone. A sister stood above him, looking at him with a quizzical expression, as if uncertain what to make of the elderly monk. A young sister. She wore a similar habit to his own, the black and white of the followers of the Archangel Ashalael. But there were variations in the width of the white cuffs at the sleeves and in the hem of the robe, and even the blackness of the cloth looked a little different in the light of Delphon's lantern. Slowly he realised it was perhaps a very dark blue, not black at all, and the badge on the breast picked out in gold showed a pair of seven pinion wings, archangel's wings, but Achaliel's wings were always shown in silver, and besides, these were surmounted by a strange nine-tined crown with a halo above, not by the mitre of the cardinal. 
But then his eyes weren't what they once were, nor his ears. The same applied to his memory. So he did not long puzzle himself over the badge or why he didn't recognize this tall, patrician-looking sister. She was curiously young, perhaps no more than 18 or 19, surely a novice. But against that, she carried herself like a visiting bishop or an abbot, and he glanced at her nut-brown hands, nodding, as he saw she wore many rings on her fingers, rings set with rectangular or oval pieces of painted and gilded ivory, or intricately engraved gilded bronze, icons of angelic magic, though he could not immediately see which angels they represented, what powers they could summon. I didn't notice you come in, your grace, he said. Her face was a little familiar, young and beautiful, dark-eyed and almond-skinned, her hair black as a rare slice of jade he'd once engraved to make an icon of Karazakiel. Her expression was severe. Delphin could not recall who she was, though she did remind him of someone. No, I did not wish you to, said the strange young sister. She held out her right hand, and Brother Delphon took it and brushed his lips in the air several inches above her fingers, his old eyes trying to focus on the face of the angel, so beautifully painted on the ivory plaque, held in the prongs of the most distinctive and extraordinarily powerful ring. He recognised neither face nor the style of the painter, which was exceedingly odd, for Brother Delphon was a prominent icon maker himself. He had studied icons all his life and painted thousands of angels, and in his heyday had been able to channel the power of no fewer than nine very useful, if relatively low-ranking, angels into his work. He could not deal with so many now, but there were still three lesser angels who would answer to him and would lend their power to inhabit the icons he made, which he finished with his own blood. I, I do not, I, I not recognise your badge, your order, muttered Delphon, releasing the bishop's hand to shakily point at her habit. You do not? asked the young woman. She laughed and her eyes sparkled with something of equal parts exuberance and mischief. It is the blazon of Plenial exalted, of course. Delphon drew back. Surely he had misheard. Plenial exalted, repeated the woman louder. She seemed to enjoy saying a name that was no longer spoken, or perhaps even remembered, save by those like Delphon, whose lives were bound up in catalogues and listings of angelic beings. Besides, his childhood had been spent near the border of Vistara, the lost country, whose archangel had been Plenial. Plenial? But he is no more, gone from this world, banished by the other archangels. But here is his archbishop, and you have looked upon her. Not all that you have been told is true. Delphon frowned and started to speak, but at that, at that moment he finally noticed something behind her, which he should have seen immediately. Words dried up in his mouth as he saw that the saint's tomb, the great stone sarcophagus that dominated the centre of this circular, vaulted chamber, was no longer as it had been. The lead-sealed marble lid of the vast coffin had been slid aside. It weighed several tons and had surely been put there originally only with the greatest effort of engineers, shearlegs and rope, or with the aid of a most powerful angel. The woman saw the direction of his stricken gaze. You seem perturbed, brother, but I assure you, St. Marguerite did not object to my sharing her crypt. Indeed, when I crept in, I found nothing there, suggesting the predecessors in your order were not entirely truthful about the founding of this place. I'll leave Lilith there. And I'll introduce the first of the four characters uh, who are significant in the book. So Lilith is the antagonist. The four she has to bring together have their own stories. Uh, they're all young people who've come to the capital of my 
invented country which is remarkably similar to France called Serrance. Uh, and there's a map. There has to be a map, of course. And they're in the city of Lutece, of which there is a map. Um, there is also a very important part of the story takes place in the Star Fortress within Lutece. And uh, there is a map. <laughs> and the Queen's Palace in Lutece, also a map. I, I actually wanted to have seven maps in total, but uh, I was restrained. <laughs> Is that another map, as well as a prologue? <laughs> Put it down. So the four, who, the four, their individual stories begin, and then all the stories come together as the, uh, the tributaries of the river join later. The narrative all, all comes together. So the first of them is Simeon McNeil. Simeon McNeil was pondering the arrangement of the bones of thumb and wrist as he dissected a hand so he didn't hear the page's first attempt to tell him he was summoned by Magister de Lazen. Though he was only a first-year student himself, a number of other neophyte doctors watched his dissection. Simeon knew this wasn't because his dissection was so proficient and swift, though it was. It was due to his physical appearance seeming to be at odds with his skill. He was a very large young man, with fingers that even he thought looked rather like black puddings. He had been called ox and mammoth when he first started at the hospital, but those names had faded as he calmly showed his expertise. His parents were, were, were well-known doctors in his hometown of Lutane in the province of Bascony. Noting his surprising dexterity, formidable memory and calm demeanour, they had trained Simeon since he was a child and he had assisted in almost every imaginable medical, medical treatment and operation. The education offered by the Hospital of St. Jeharabim the Calm was for him more of a formality than a challenge. That said, though he was effectively already a doctor, Simeon could not practice as one without the formal certification of hospital training, and he had philosophically accepted that he had had to put up with repeating much he already knew, and there were always new things to learn or to discover, even if this rarely happened in the actual lessons. The magister said you were to attend him at once, repeated the boy. Simeon didn't know the page's name, but he'd seen him around before, and he seemed more than, more than usually dejected even for a refuser, who were all typically melancholic. For a moment, Simeon wondered if the boy had finally realised what the future held for him, manual servitude in a life that would be very likely cut short. As a refuser, angelic magic could not be used upon him, as it would either initiate the Ashblood Plague or transform him into a beastling. The boy was forever cut off from the miraculous cures and protections offered by the very hospital that employed him and he was very likely to catch one of the quite ordinary diseases they treated here. And I'll leave you there. It's Brother Simeon being summoned to something or other, which we will discover. And then the next character is Henri, who is a, uh, a would-be clerk for the Cardinal. Uh, the Cardinal, in this case, is also a woman, another woman Cardinal. Um, the yellow antechamber was almost as far away as you could get in the Cardinal's Palace from the centre of power. The small, saffron wallpapered room was usually home to four very unimportant clerks who merely copied documents rather than drafting anything of importance, and certainly none of them ever expected to speak to the Cardinal herself, or even anyone more important than the third secretary, who at least notionally oversaw their work. So it was with great surprise and no small amount of apprehension that Henri du Paladin, least and newest of clerks, looked up from his work to find himself the only one present in the yellow antechamber as the door was pushed open and Monsignor Robard burst in 
with all the peremptory importance of a man who was first secretary to Cardinal Duplessis, highest priest of the order of a Chaliel, patron archangel of Serance, and more important perhaps, chief minister to the queen, and thus generally accepted to be the de facto ruler of the realm. Um, good day, sir, said Henri, leaping to attention. He pushed his high stool back so quickly he almost knocked it over, and he did flick several splotches, splotches of ink onto the letter he was currently copying. Robard, splendid in the actual scarlet sleeves and hose and a cloth of gold doublet, the cardinal's colours, looked bleakly at the young, wide-eyed Henri in his low, clerkly version of the raiment, which was dull red and a kind of yellow that only the charitable would associate with any precious metal. Where are Delanzio and Dorena? he barked, and the other one. Sir Delanzio has the grip, said Henry Henri after a hasty bow, where his rump threatened to knock the high stool over again. Sir Dorena, I'm not sure she stepped that earlier. Uh, the other one, I, I know only of by repute. I've never actually met Sir Macalon. And you are? Henri de, Pla de Paladin at your service, sir. When did you join the Cardinal's service? Last Wednesday, to be exact. Is that a moustache or some remnant of your breakfast? The beginnings of a moustache, said Henri defensively, stroking his upper lip. <laughs> That's Henri. And then we have Agnes, who the musketeer. Agnes tried to relax her grip on the rapier, tilting her wrist, opening her fingers. The gloves they had given her were not the supple kidskin she was used to, but gauntlets of thick buff leather, making her hand bulkier and slow. The rapier was also heavier and longer than her own, not to mention intentionally blunted, whereas her own well-tended sword blade was sharp enough to cut falling hair. But this test had to be passed with the gloves and weapon provided, and with her right hand, when she generally preferred her left. Magical aid was likewise forbidden, so that the sole icon Agnes possessed, a small plaque carrying the likeness of Duchenial, was tucked in the band of her hat and lay with her sword and cloak in the corner of the room, though in any case all Duchenial could do was provide a light in darkness, and at that only when the moon was dark or in the full first or last quarter. Come on then, exclaimed the arms master, letting her sword point slide a few inches across the paving stones of the courtyard with a shriek of metal on stone. It was just an act, Agnes knew, to invite a foolish attack. Her mother had taken her to see one of Armsmaster Franzon's exhibition matches on their last visit to Lutece two years ago, and the champion of the Queen's Musketeers was undoubtedly still as lethally fast as she had been then. My glove is too big, sniffed Agnes, making herself sound pathetic, while also letting her own blade drop as if she couldn't hold it up. But even as the last word left her mouth, she suddenly straightened into a stamping lunge right at Franzon's heart, which for the merest fragment of a second seemed like it might connect, before her rapier was savagely beaten away, and then Agnes was backing and parrying, twisting desperately sideways, and not many seconds later was nursing her bruised hand, as her heavy rapier clanged and bounced on the paving stones. Disarmed so quickly, Agnes knew in a real duel she would be lying on the ground, gasping out her last breath as her bright red blood spread across those pavers. Eighteen seconds said an extraordinarily large, rather bear-like man, a russet bear, for his skin was red-brown, and though his hair and beard were black, they too had a tinge of red, like the last touch of flame in a dying charcoal fire. He wore the same silver-edged black tabard as Franzon, the uniform of the Queen's Musketeers, in his case garments large enough to make a tent for Agnes. You counted too fast, said Franzon, though I compliment you in general upon the achievement. I didn't even see your lips move, Sesturo. I counted in my head, said the man calmly. I have been practising. Shall we say twenty seconds, then? Agnes held her breath. 
This was the first test she had to pass, to, la to last at least a third of a minute against arms master Franzon, sword to sword. Franzon looked at Agnes, who tried to restrain the expression that she was sure made her look all too like a puppy, hoping to be thrown an off-cut from the arms master's dinner. The my gloves too loose thing was good, said the arms master. I like that, rumbled Sesturo. She's very young. I'm almost 18, blurted Agnes, and then in agonised immediacy. I beg your pardon, arms master. Impulsive, has rustic manners. Agnes set her jaw tight to stop herself from protesting. She was a Bascon, raised in the country, but her mother was not only a former Queen's musketeer, but also Baron Desqueray of an ancient and noble family, whose holder had the unique right to present the Queen with a black rose once a year and ask for a boon in return. Though there were no black roses and never had been, this was a high honour. Perhaps the King's guard, mused Sesturo aloud. Um, I'll leave Agnes there. And the last of the four is also an angelic mage, an icon maker called Dorotea. Um, and she has come to the university in, in uh, Lutais, which is called the Bell Hall. And uh, she's been asked to demonstrate a particular talent that she has uh, to the staff there uh, in the building called the Rotunda. The Rotunda had been closed and Proctor stood guard at every entrance. There were only six people gathered around the assay. The rector herself, two of the four procurators, the scholar provost and the university bishop. The sixth person was a cheerful looking short young woman with deep brown skin and thoughtful dark eyes who wore a student's blue robe over what looked like a groom's leather tunic and breeches, not typical attire in the rotunda. She had a stick of charcoal in her hand. There was a sharp iconous pricking knife and a sheet of stiff parchment on the workbench in front of her. Next to an open copy of the first volume of the five volume illustrated compendium of, compendium of angels, Marsus, the inhabitants of heaven, and the central reference for icon makers. You do not know this angel, asked the rector. She was a stern, sixty-ish woman, wearing the long, black, saffron-edged robe of her office, which was adorned with a half-dozen icon brooches. No, used in this sense, meant an angel a mage had established a connection with, either had already made an icon to summon, or was in the process of doing so. Establishing this initial knowledge often took days or weeks, or sometimes even months or years, for the more powerful angels. Getting to know the, an angel was a well-known process that could not be hastened or so most angelic mages had always been taught. I do not, your grace, answered the young woman, whose name was Dorothy Emsil. She was only 18, a first year student at the Rotunda, though she had previously studied at the lesser university of Tramorane, and had in fact graduated from there at the earlier but not totally unprecedented age of 16. The reason she was here, in the center of the Rotunda, surrounded by such luminaries of the Bell Hull, was because a talent, or as some called it a trick, she had exhibited at Tremorane was now to be examined here. And I'll leave her there too. And of course there are some other significant secondary characters, but I can't read introductions to all of them. Well, well that was um, a short... Prologue, an introduction. <laughs> I think uh, you want the prologue? No, no. <laughs> no, we're not. We're not done. But I've been informed by Rena that with uh, Governor Newsom has required that whenever there's a serious and powerful reader, there has to be a 6.5 minute intermission before we begin our discussion and interrogation of the author. So let's begin it, and we'll see you back here in 
five minutes. Okay? The SFNSF podcast is sponsored by Tachyon Press, the American Bookbinders Museum, and some FM listener-supported commercial-free internet radio with over 35 channels of really interesting music to pick from. Check it out at sumfm.com. Well, that was exciting for sure. I would. I just want to start with one little observation. It's probably not... Um, it's been made before, but one of the things I love about Garth and the the best of our fantasy writers is that many times in fantasy and science fiction, the world of magic is kind of just a, a muddled world of power, and then there's the quotidian world, which is all separated in the stuff. But I think what's interesting always about Garth, and I would say other the other higher rank of fantasy writers is that the world of magic is one of, you know, lots of orders and ranks and different orders of privilege and rank and time and, and hierarchy and as complicated as the quotidian world. And that's kind of, to me, what makes it work. It's what makes it interesting, I think, absolutely. Yeah. 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 The, the magic... I always want the magic to feel real, to feel as if, okay, if there was magic and it, it could work like this, this does actually make sense. And also, I always try and do something that's a little bit different. So the angels in this book are not, uh, are not strictly like uh, angels as seen in other works of fiction and also in, in, in belief and myth and legend and so on. I mean, I take that as a starting point, of course, but... Uh, I hope there is, there's some difference in that, in that treatment and also in how people summon and use them too. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's an element in here of global warming where the, the wind has blown an angel from Europe south of the equator and it becomes an angel. And I, th- I think that that's an important change that takes place. So anyway, I'm going to open it up um, to anyone who has a question or comment for Garth, on that reading or on his other Yes, of any, significant any of my books or writings, particularly really, really obscure stories I wrote a really long time ago and I can't remember at all because <laughs> those are the ones that I love the best. And in fact, if you could make the question really, really, really obscure, that's helpful as well. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> um, my name is Patrick. Um, hi, Patrick. Uh, my favourite... Or among my favorite stories of yours are the Sir Hereward, Mr. Fitz. Yep. Um, when might we hear another story? There is a new Sir Hereward and Mr. Fitz story in an anthology next year. Unfortunately, the anthology hasn't been announced. Uh, it's edited by Jonathan Strawn, and he would kill me if I told you what it is. But it does involve big flying creatures and breathe fire. <laughs> okay, no one on the podcast heard that, I hope. Yeah. Um, so there, there is a new Sir Herod and Mr. Fitz story in an anthology edited by Jonathan Strawn that's out next year. So that'll be the, that'll be the next one up for them, uh, which I think is the eighth the eighth story involving so uh, Sir, Sir Herod is a um, is a knight artillerist and Mr. Fitz is a animated puppet uh, and sorcerer. So uh, and the the duo travel about um, making. We're getting rid of um, gods that should not have impinged upon our world. It's an easy job, but someone's got to do it. Yeah. Hi, 
Hi, my name is Leia, and I'm curious how you came up with the idea for Angel Mage, and also the process of deciding when an idea is going to become a book. Like this is a decent idea. Okay. Well, you never know. You you, you never know whether a decent idea or not. And in fact, often uh, I think most authors I, I share this. You think it's probably not a good idea for most of writing the book. And particularly halfway through, you think it's not only not a good idea, it's actually a really dumb idea and the whole book sucks. That is actually perfectly normal. Um, so if you're writing a book and you're partway through and you really hate it, you are not alone. That is actually very, very common. Um, but the Means trick is... halfway through. <laughs> well, the trick is to press on. I mean, I, 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 I've written lots of books. I've been doing this a long time. And I still reach a point, typically it is about halfway, where I doubt, I think I, I've forgotten how to write. Could I ever write? How did I do those other books? Um, this particular one is extraordinarily awful. Uh, and, but, then, but then I can normally get past it to think, well, okay, it's probably bad, but I can fix it up. And then I keep, keep working on it. And then by the time I've pushed on, I start thinking, well, maybe it's not that bad after all. And this particular bit is actually quite good. Uh, oh, that's brilliant, that one sentence. Um, <laughs> you know, if only the rest were like that. Uh, so it's actually very hard to tell early on. I, I just think if, if I'm enthusiastic about the idea, I'm not worried about whether it's good or not, just that I've got the enthusiasm for it. Um, Angel Mage uh, probably goes back a very, very long way. Um, it goes back to my, my love of the Three Musketeers, uh, which I, I first read when I was nine or 10. Um, it goes back to when I, I first learned, I was learning defense in high school and stupidly they let us take uh, Epe's home. Um, with, and we were meant to practice wearing masks and you know, protective vest. Uh, but of course, we, and, and also, you know, you know, mark out, you know, carefully mark out a, a pist on the lawn and fence in there. And of course, my, my friend John and I used to fence all up and down the stairs, along the veranda, you know, across this little pond and jumping from stone to stone and all that sort of thing, um, which was all great until one time we were fencing and his pay actually broke as he hit me. And of course, a broken pay is a very sharp, horrible piece of metal. Um, luckily, it was in Canberra, uh, which is the national, the federal capital of Australia, which is cold in, in winter, it gets below freezing. And we were wearing, and I was wearing this ridiculous 1970s brown parka, which tangled their broken epi. It didn't get through the, the, the padding of the parka, and so I survived to write Angel Mage. Um, <laughs> so I think if you look at all those things, uh, so it was, you know, it was reading The Three Musketeers, it was the fencing, um, also a role-playing game called Flashing Blades, which I, I loved. I was an early D&D player, traveller and so on. Uh, but in my early 20s I played, it's a very obscure uh, role-playing game called Flashing Blades, uh, which is a Three Musketeers role-playing game. And I, a friend of mine ran a campaign for a couple of years, which I played in. I think all of that deeply imprinted on me that one day I needed to write a musketeer book. Um, and I had sort of had a little go at it in a short story called "To Hold the Ci uh, to Hold, Sorry, a short story called "The Heart of the City," which is in my collection. To hold the bridge, um, that's actually an historical fantasy uh, set in the 1620s in Paris, but with angelic magic. But and so that was kind of like a field test. And then years later, I thought I want to do a musketeer. I still I still haven't got it right. I still want to do a musketeer story with that with angels because angelic magic. Or the summoning of angels seems to fit that period, the 17th. And I wanted that. I always want magic. You know, even when I try and write a contemporary story, something creeps in. I mean, 
it's very rare I can write a completely realistic contemporary story without thinking, hang on, this would be a lot better if there was just this other element. Um, uh, so there's very few of my stories don't have the strange creep in. Uh, it seems to be second nature to me. I've done it a couple of, a couple of times, but um, uh, it's, you know, I was, it's interesting. I was writing a, a story, uh, basically a military story, set in Afghanistan the other day and uh, uh, based upon something a, a friend of mine told me about uh, who, who was there. And I started writing the story using things that he told me. And then I just thought, this would be so much better if one of them was telepathic. <laughs> yeah. But only telepathic when they're practically dead. So, in fact, so dead they have to be have like cardiac massage to keep them alive whilst they're being tele. It's like, hmm, yeah, that's that's that's, that's not the story I set out to do. Um, but it's 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 just it seems to always come in that, that sort of thing. So I guess that's been building up in me for a long time. And then, uh, as I do with many of my books, these ideas are all floating around. And then at some point, I will write a little passage uh, from the book. And often it is the prologue, or it's the first chapter which may or may not end up in the book. It might just be something I do to try and work out the character or the voice or the setting. Um, and it might be something I need to do, but won't be in the book. Um, in this case, I wrote the prologue, which told me, sort of the, it told me the sort of prehistory of the novel or the, the 100 years before, but it's actually set up everything that was going to happen after it. Um, and that prologue ended up staying in the book. Uh, and then I think about it a whole lot more and I will normally then write an outline uh, and I'll, I'll write like a paragraph on each chapter, uh, which I then won't follow. Um, it's, it's the Zen outline. You have to do it even though you're not going to use it. Um, and I do that, I mostly do that for my books. Uh, if you looked at one of my outlines and then looked at the book, you'd be like, what? I was looking at actually the one for Sabriel years, you know, which goes back a really, really long time and, and looking at the chapter outline. And one of the chapters was called The Raft People thinking, well, the raft people, what was, what was I thinking? Um, uh, I have no idea. Sabriel was going to meet the raft people and do stuff with them for a whole chapter. Um, didn't happen. But, it, but it's still a very useful exercise. And, and, then, I, and then I typically uh, sit down and I, I write from beginning to end. But lots of people don't. I mean, people write in many, many different ways. There's no one way to write a novel. Um, I was reading a biography of... Uh, P.G. Woodhouse the other day, who I love, the humorist, uh, you know, Jeeves and Worcester and so on. And his method was he would write an, quite a detailed outline uh, and then he would he'd have a chapter outline and then he would look at the chapters and he would think which one would be the hardest to write. And then he would order the chapters in his idea of difficulty from his outline. How do you even know how difficult they're going to be? And then he would write the most difficult one first. So if it was chapter 20, he would write that first. And then chapter... 30, because it was like the second most difficult. And it worked perfectly for him. So there's so many different ways. But for me, that's, that's roughly how I, how I mostly do it, though I have diverged from that at times. But I think uh, that's a long-winded way of answering your question. I think if you... It's worth remembering a book is never one idea. It's lots and lots of ideas. So all you need is one idea to get you started to go on to find the other ideas. And if you begin, you will probably find them. If you just keep going and think about, well, what can happen next? What, you know, what would this character who I'm starting to know about, what would they do? Um, and more ideas will, will, will come in. A, a book isn't one idea. It's, I mean, you could look at this and say it's uh, inspired by the Three Musketeers. It is. But there's, there's hundreds of other ideas in there as well. But that was, I guess, that's the initial little spark that, that set it all off was 
you know, what, wanting to be a musketeer, probably. Not sure which one. Which one would I want to be? Atos, mm. <laughs> without the drinking problem. Hello, my name's Emma. Um, Hello. And I was wondering, uh, as you've written, are there parts of writing that get easier or harder? I guess, like, both. Which parts are easier and which parts are harder as you've written? Both is, in fact, the answer. Um, because some things get easier and then they get harder again. So it's an ever-changing feast. Um, I, I, I guess it's certainly true that because you're practising a craft, there are certain aspects of the craft that, that get easier. Uh, but because it's also an art, then that may make parts of the craft, which theoretically know how to do, actually harder. So um, it's, it's never a straightforward answer. And, and no one book... I've never written a book that's just been easy to write. They all have hard bits and easy bits and incredibly hard bits and you can never tell what what's they're going to be beforehand. Um, except, I guess, you do know you will work it out. I, mean, I guess that's probably the benefit of experience is that you, can, you, can, you know that you'll get over hating it. You know that you'll probably work it out even if you can't at the moment. I mean, you have something that doesn't work at all. Uh, you, you know that, okay... I can't fix this book right now, but I know I will be able to eventually. Though sometimes that means putting it away for a while and doing something else, uh, which which I do quite often. I write a lot. I mean, the short fiction I write, and I also write screenplays sometimes as well. They're they're all they're all things I often do when I'm having trouble with a novel, and if I leave the novel and do some other writing, and also just do other things like walk around and you know watch a film or just do nothing. Um, for a certain length of time, uh, that will you now my subconscious will help me work it out. But there, there's no yeah, there's no one thing that gets easier. Um, that's on the writing side of things. Separately to that, there's actually what you do with your writing in terms of publishing it and so on. That certainly it doesn't get easier, but you understand better how to make the most of it and also how to address problems that that may arise. So I guess there's that benefit from. The more, more you do of it. Um, I, I guess the sort of... Uh, I, I, some, I joke about it, but this is kind of true. The, the universal answer to any publishing or writing problem is actually just write more, is write another book. So if, you, if your last book didn't work or you couldn't make it work or you couldn't get it published or, it, you know, whatever happened, the answer is always write another one because it gives you another chance and maybe you'll work it out. Maybe this one you will work out, this one will all come together. Uh, which is which can be dispiriting if you've spent two years writing a book and things don't work out. But uh, there, that is kind of the only answer is to is to, to write more things and, and get another chance. There's a lot of luck involved in this in the in the what happens to a book after you've written it, uh, and you get another chance with every new thing, every new story, every new book is a another spin on the wheel. Um, but there's there's no certainties. Yeah, is that kind of unhelpfully answer, perhaps. <laughs> Hello, I'm Kate. Hello. Um, so your books have been a huge part of my life for two-thirds of it. Um, I think one of the reasons for that is your female characters, um, which is, is, is a pretty well-known hallmark of your writing. Um, and I, even the, the really early ones that I've come across, the, that's still a really strong point to them. Uh, from back, you know, when strong female characters weren't such a prominent part of 
fantasy and science fiction. Um, and I was wondering if the choice to write female characters like that, was, is that a conscious one? Did you feel like there was a need that it had to fulfill or is it just something that happens for some reason? It was really just a happy accident, to be, to be honest. I'd love to say that it was a conscious effort to re redress you know, something, you know, that the fact that fantasy and science fiction didn't re reflect real life as much as it should. Though, of course, there are lots of very significant women writers working and writing brilliant you know, female characters, but not as many as there should have been. Um, I was very influenced by um, people like Robin McKinley, you know, whose, whose work I love, um, Ursula Le Guin's you know, The Tombs of Atuan, um, Tenar, I, I, love, I love her. Uh, so the, no, there, were, there, there were very good examples to look to even when I started, but just not that many. Uh, but uh, it's, it's interesting, people ask me about writing uh, women characters and you know, how, can I, how can I do it? So this is not your question, I, I agree. And I'm kind of puzzled because I live in a world with lots of women who are capable of doing absolutely everything and could easily just step into one of my books and be you know, far more, uh, you know, more effective than I ever would be. Um, so all I've got to do is look around and you know, I can write the women characters. People don't ask me, well, they, in fact, they never ask me, how do you make up inhuman monsters? That uh, you know, which which don't exist at all. Um, you know, yeah, it's like so. Uh, so, how, where did the mordicant come from? You just looked at one of those and just wrote it down. Yeah, I mean, there's one across the road. Um, but uh, no, with with women, it just it, it was just instinctive that I felt that that's that's that should be. And uh, and with Sabriel, I was lucky because uh, I wrote the prologue was the first thing that I wrote, and I really knew nothing about the book. And at that point, I wasn't sure whether I was going to write about her father or her. And after I'd written the prologue, I just thought, oh, actually, Sabriel's much more interesting than a dad, so I'm going to write about her. Um, but, but once I decided to write about her, I, I just looked around me at you know, the, the, the women that I knew and grew up with. Uh, I think you know, I did have the benefit of going to a co-ed school, for example. So you know, I, have, I have women friends from, from preschool. Uh, which I might not have had if the different sort of upbringing in a different place. Uh, so yeah, I just, as with all my characters, I just took little bits and pieces from people I know and people I observed and uh, and people I've read about as well, and just you know, gave them to my to my characters. Uh, so it, it wasn't all that conscious, except that uh, I certainly always try and maintain that in in all my my writing. Uh, I firmly believe that uh, you know, men, women, all, all genders, uh, all kinds of people from anywhere can do anything and be anything. That, that is actually the truth. And what, what holds people back are the, the social constructs and economic constructs around us and why carry them over into a fantasy world? Uh, the fantasy world's going to have enough problems without having to you know, pr produce the, the, the base aspects of our own one in, in there as well. So. Yeah, I'd like to have more, take more credit, but it really was a sort of instinctive, but good thing. Yeah. Um, my name is Jade. I'm a fan for about 20 years now. Thank you. Um, I'm going to be 36 uh, this month, and so it's just since I was seven, well, 16 is when I found Sabriel, and I've just been in love since. Thank you. Um, speaking of Sabriel, to me, um, it's just such a descriptive book. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to, like going into kind of about uh, monsters and, and kind of like the demons that you have. Like how do you come up with such descriptive words to relay it to the reader so that you really feel like as if you're actually like in the book, you're, you're, you're 
not just reading the words. You're like you're along the journey with Sabriel Lyriel. Um, you're you know who I, I'm a Shades Children fan big time. You know it's it's that same thing where you know it's just the words that you use. Like where do you come up with these words that just you know I, I guess a good example for me is. Um, I always like to, if I'm trying to get somebody that's to get into you, is in Sabriel, and it's the part where she's, you know, huffing it up the the mountain to get to the door, and it's like she can hear the Morgan, you know, the Morgan how, chasing the Morgan, yeah, yeah, and howling behind her, and that you know, you can hear that, and it, then the bell rings, and you can hear it echoing across like parrots or screeching parrots or whatever it is, and it's like, where do you come up with those ideas of, of I mean, it's just it's so, um, like. I don't, not literal. I wouldn't say it's literal. It's it's like it's evocative. Sounds good. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. How do you how do you come I'm up with that? I'm just showing that I I've yes. got a few words. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly, um, exactly. That's a great there's, question. There's a lot of shrieking parrots in Australia, so that, <laughs> that was also that's also a benefit from where I grew up. Um, thank you. No, I I actually really appreciate that. I take that as a great compliment because what I try and do is I try and visualize and imagine myself in the scene that I'm writing and I want to try and make it as real as possible to myself so I feel frightened or terrified or uh, you know if I can if I can feel the emotion I want to convey and I can get it across in generally sparse but effective prose uh, that's that's always my my goal is to try and get that across to, that transfer of emotion uh, and you know whether and you know, happiness or, or, or sadness or, or any of those things, the the emotion that's part of the action is something I always aim to to transmit. Um, and I guess the way that uh, you know I equip myself to be a writer, as most people do, is is reading. And I read enormous amounts, uh, and I always have, and I hope I, I always will. Touch wood. Um, and I also have always read lots and lots of different things. And this helps you both equip your vocabulary and also all the different literary techniques, uh, which, you, which you, you just learn instinctively, which is one of the great things. You don't even have to study. You just read lots of books and read lots of good books and you, you will take those in. But I do think it's important to, to read many different kinds of books and nonfiction as well as fiction because uh, you will get different things from from different works at different times, uh, including you know, reading the classics will, will give you a different sort of tool set. If you're reading 19th century English novels, that will give you a different kind of tool set to reading you know, 1950s you know, uh, stream of consciousness stuff. There's just so many different ways to tell stories. Reading poetry is also fantastic for, for meter and rhythm and also euphony, how things sound. You know, the sound of a phrase is really important. Um, so all of those things, but I, so I, I think it's it's the reading, the reading was my apprenticeship, and then also just writing a lot and revising to try and get it right, because um, quite often I've written, quite often my first draft, sometimes my first drafts come out very well, and sometimes they come out very bald and not good. So what happens? The thing that's happening is okay, the action is okay, but nothing else is, and then I have to go back and rework it a lot to. To get across, uh, to get across the the emotion I want, uh, sometimes to make it more euphonious or or clearer, or uh, you know just to just to make it work better. So often it's 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 multiple revision that actually gets it to the point where where it will work. 
And then later, of course, uh, also you're nearly always helped by an editor and assisting as well. I mean, there are rare occasions where an editor is not helpful, but, but you know, 98% of the time, you're working with the right person, uh, you know, they will really help that last polish that, that, that just makes it more effective. Um, so it's, it's all, all of those things. Um, and yeah, just pra practice, I guess. Um, sometimes I think I'm getting worse, but you know, that's halfway through a book. Halfway through a book, I think. Hi, I'm Haley. Um, so my question is actually, um, have you ever written something that you believe to be like amazing, like incredible, but your editor's like, mm, this isn't working. You need to take this back to the drawing board. And kind of how do you all, work through all that? All of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's just me being silly. Um, it happens more with short fiction than with the novels, though with, with the novels, uh, sometimes there's been some very key editorial input. Um, one of my keys to the Kingdom books, for example, uh, my editor, David Levithan, who's also a very accomplished young adult writer uh, and is a great editor, he pointed out to me that one of the secondary characters was completely unnecessary. And that if you took out everything that he did or said, it made no difference to the book whatsoever. And I liked this character. I thought, this is a great character. And so I got the, uh, an email from Dave. I'm reading the editorial letter. I'm thinking, oh, what's he talking about? You know, this is the, the instinctive reaction is, ah, oh, rubbish. Um, <laughs> but you know, I've been in this long enough to know you've got you to gotta get over that. You've got to let that one go. And then the next day I looked at it and I looked at this character. I looked at all their dialogue and everything they did. And I thought, yeah, they're complete and utter wart upon this book. And they need to be excised, so I took that out. So that was an example of an editor, you know, making it, it better. Um, with, with short stories, um, I quite often these days I write short fiction. Someone will ask me to write one for an anthology, often a themed anthology, uh, and I'll write a story. And I'll think the short stories I'm more inclined to like when they're done. I often think, hey, it's a pretty good story, and then I'll, I'll send it off, and and the editor will say, nah. <laughs> so, um, and it's always useful. And in fact, that's, that's in the last year, I wrote two stories uh, to two different editors, which were rejected for their anthologies that they were destined, hopefully destined for. Um, and in both cases, after the normal sort of ranting and, and, and crying and rending of my garments and so on, um, I looked at, looked at the, I looked at the stories, I looked at what they'd said and realized that the, the the, the criticisms were absolutely correct, and I rewrote both the stories and then resold them somewhere else, uh, and they were infinitely better you know, for that. And, and actually, in both cases, the second half of the story was the problem, and I, I had to write two completely. I had to write a completely different second half in in, in both stories. Um, and when I read them again, I thought, yeah, I, I actually I'd, I'd lost my perspective and and. The setup was good, and then the story just fell apart. But at the, when I'd finished it, in the sort of heat of finishing it, and 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 also these were stories I sent off quite quickly after finishing, whereas normally I would sit on them longer. But there were there were deadlines, um, and with books I like to hold. You know, I always like to have rereading and revision that takes place over a while, have a bit of time not looking at it, and just with more time and with expert advice. I turned them into good stories when they were they were bad stories. So I was actually glad they didn't take them, uh, because that would have that would have, they would have just been, you know, also it, at best also ran stories which would have done no one any good really.
You mentioned a writing group. Are you part of a? Uh, do you workshop stuff with friends or uh, uh, colleagues? No, I, I don't actually. Um, I'm a very secretive writer. As a matter of fact, I um, I don't send stuff out. I don't. The first person who reads anything I've written, as a rule, uh, is is my agent, uh, and and my wife, who is a publisher, and thus has actually enough neurotic authors to deal with without having to work with me. Um, <laughs> She, she doesn't work with me, but um, so. But I, I normally give her the manuscript at the same time it goes to my agent, and uh, and that's that's the first typically that, that I share it, uh, and and with short stories, of course, to whoever's whoever's asked for it. You now the editor who's who's commissioned it or um, has has asked me to submit something. But yeah, otherwise I I'm I'm very secretive. I like to keep it to myself. But it was not always. I mean, I when I was at university uh, studying creative writing. Uh, I did work in workshop groups, and they, and they were beneficial. Um, but no, I've, I'm not quite sure why I've become a secretive writer over these years. But um, that's 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 what I do. Yeah. But but work, workshop groups are very beneficial to to lots of people. You know, they find them really really useful. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I, d I just wanted to mention one other thing that Garth has a huge reputation as a fantasy, an extended fantasy writing significant books, but also could, could have had a whole career as a short story writer. I mean, you've done many short stories, and they're quite, you know, for selling to the top markets like F, SF and SF, and with Gardner and Ellen Datlow, and now the field is mostly of these anthologies, and you do a lot of that stuff. And... Um, um, I, I'm just missing that. Not that there's anything different about it, but um, I, I, I love writing short fiction um, because you can do different things. Uh, particularly when invited to do something like for Ellen Datlow to do something that's horror, uh, because I never think of myself as a horror writer. Some may differ, um, <laughs> because even things like you know the Old Kingdom books to me, well, they're dark fantasy. I mean, sure they involve the dead and things coming back from death and so on. But uh, to me, that, that doesn't strike me as horror. But, but you know, for Ellen, I've been able to write some out-and-out -out complete horror stories where everything, everyone dies and everything ends badly, um, you know, uh, which, is, which is fun and, and different. And uh, I also like writing science. I don't write very much science fiction, but uh, I've written a couple of science fiction novels. What are um, they? Well, Shades Children, which, uh, which got a mention, which is a cheerful little number, um, you know. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a YA dystopian, post-apocalyptic dystopia, which I wrote probably 10 years too early uh, before all the other ones. Um, uh, but, uh, and um, A Confusion of Princes, which is uh, a space opera. Uh, yeah, so, which was, which was great fun. I, and I love, I, love, I love science fiction, but otherwise um, it's in, it's in uh, short fiction that I, I, get to, I get to write science fiction. And you you write it as you go. You you do it in between the yeah other. yeah. And I find it like an antidote when I'm a bit often when I'm a bit stuck or tired of a novel. Um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll write a story. Um, often it's because someone's asked me to write a story. I think, and, I, and often I say I'm too busy. I can't write a story for that anthology. And then 24 hours pass, and I have to email back. Damn it! I've thought of an idea for this story, and and I am going to write it now because I've already done the first, you know, two thousand words, um, and so that's kind of, that's that's kind of fun. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, I love writing the short fiction as well. Yeah. Any other questions in the in the audience? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Books. Uh, so. One of the things that I've always loved about your work is the phenomenal integration of the world building and the systems you create, whether it's, you know, charter magic and free magic or uh, the staircase and uh, all the world of the keys to the kingdom. And you mentioned earlier your long love of uh, role playing games. And I know you used to be a LARPer back in the day. And I know from experience, having helped run an unofficial Sabriel LARP once upon a time, that it works really well. So my question is, have you ever considered bringing your writing to role-playing games, either writing an original game or an adaptation of one of your worlds? Uh, yeah, I have thought about it. It's really just time. Time is always my problem. And I have so much fiction to write that I, I just can't spare the, the time to, to do anything in, in, that, in that field. I mean, I hardly have the time to do any role-playing. Uh, I'd love to play more. I mean, there's a, a group of people I played with in my 20s in Canberra who still play every second Friday night. And I would love, and, and when I visit Canberra, I get a, I occasionally get a guest spot. Um, though the last time I, I played with them within five minutes, um, the rest of the party stunned me and left me there for about um, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a science fiction game because I was playing my suspicious character too suspiciously. Um, <laughs> It was actually all kind of fair enough, but I thought, hey guys, this is the first time I play with you for like two years and you leave me stunned on the floor while the aliens are attacking. Um, but you know, that's kind of fair enough. But um, lots of other people have, have you know, informally adapted, particularly the Old Kingdom, to their own games and developed you know, D&D classes for the Abhorsons and, and so on, which is cool, it's great. And if someone wanted to do it uh, you know, more officially, uh, you know, I'd always look at that. Don't, no one has on a sort of uh, on, a, on a commercial level, but you never know. Time, time will tell. It'd be great. It'll be it'll be a good thing. And you're for Dungeons and Dragons, also, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I, I bought the very first Dungeons and Dragons in the little white box when it came out. I, 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 the actual idea of it was so exciting to me. It's like, wow, this is such an incredibly amazing idea. But of course, no one in the entire world had ever heard of it at that point. So I had a little white box of these three booklets and uh, it probably took me about three months to convince some of my friends to actually play because no one had played it. I mean, this, this is in 1974. Uh, it had just come out and it wasn't like now where people know what it is. Um, it was like, wow, that's weird. Um, I mean, that probably continues, but um, yeah, so... I played I played Dungeons and Dragons uh, for many years, after I was, and I was the GM, of course, um, most of the time. I played as well, and Traveller, the science fiction game, which I also really liked. Hi, I'm Jexy, wife Hello. of Patrick. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Um, you have a very intimate uh, relationship with the objects in your series. They seem to push onto scenes. Sabriel's teacup, the drop of blood of the uh, the boat, and the scene of the. the when she's talking to her mother, I assume. Um, can you tell me more about that? Um, I think small details are how you help create the reality of the world. So using the right small details make things feel real. And they're like little connectors that readers can latch onto. And it just makes everything around them seem like, oh yeah, this is, this is actually a real thing. It's really happening. Um, and, and I guess that it's, 
it's, I guess it's a technique, but it, it's something I've always just instinctively done. And sometimes it's just because I like, I like the idea of, the, I just like the things. Um, I mean, there's lots of places in my books that I would like to exist, so that's why they're there. There's also lots and lots of things I dislike, and uh, I, would, I would like them to be real, and so I put them into the stories. But I, but I do think those small details uh, just, just give the reader the texture, something to latch onto, and then you, your mind supplies the rest. You don't actually need much, much else as long as you can get it right. And, of course, you can go too far the other way and have... You know, describe everything and then that's too much there's, there's too much detail um, but speaking of small I should say speaking of small things I, I like to you know have things made to, to, to give away for my books and so on and um, I actually had an icon an angelic icon made for this tour um, and I actually just chose an artist it's actually quite hard to find a fairly unadorned angel sort of iconish sort of thing and um, I uh, found these on Etsy so I, I have I had no idea that they seemed to be actually from someone who believes in angels, um, in real ones. Um, so, but uh, I've got one here which I'm going to give away as a little memento of, uh, of Angel Mage. I've got a whole box more for the rest of the tour. Um, and so, does anyone actually have a birthday today? This week? In the first week of October? Right, last week of September. Anyone, last week, ah, oh, come on. <laughs> Demographically speaking. All right, we'll go back, we'll go a completely different technique. My own birthday is, is July 19. Has anyone got a birthday in the week of July or around July 19? <laughs> July 16th. July 16th, here we are. In fact, uh, it may in fact protect you uh, or do something. The, maker, the maker's uh, website is there on the bottom. Thank you very so, much. So, but anyway, it'll help you remember. It'll help you remember Angel Mage, and uh, and me rabbiting on. <laughs> well, while we got a, a lull, I wanted to ask a couple of questions about collaborations. Sure. Uh, I, I noticed that you did uh, a thing called Spirit Animals and one called. Have Sword Will Travel, which sounded like a, a Western pastiche, <laughs> but, uh, with a, a character named Sean Williams, I think. Never heard of him. Is that right? Yes. Sean is, one of, Sean is a very good friend of mine. Okay. Sean is a very good friend of mine. And in fact, I took a photograph of chili Brussels sprouts in a restaurant last night to send to him because he's a Brussels ah. sprout fancier. Ah. Which doesn't sound all that good now. I've just said it aloud. Um, he loves his Brussels sprouts. Yeah, I, um, I've written a number of books with with Sean, uh, who is a, an Australian science fiction and fantasy writer who lives in Adelaide. Um, I live in Sydney. Um, we now, what did, is it? What's the, what's the? Is that two hundred miles away or four hundred? Uh, it's about a thousand. Yeah, Australia's pretty big. Yeah. 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 Okay. Just curious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we wrote uh, the Trouble Twisters children's series together, uh, yes. and then Spirit Animals. And Spirit Animals is actually a multi-author, one of Scholastic's multi-author series where every every book in the series is written by a different author. And we wrote book four of Spirit Animals, Blood Ties, um, as the two of us wrote that one. But all the other books are written by by single authors. 
Um, that's a publisher-driven series for children. Um, but Trouble Twisters was one we developed ourselves and then um, have Sword Will Travel and its sequel, Let Sleeping Dragons Lie. Uh, so, yeah, I, I love... I've really enjoyed writing books with Sean. Um, and what we'd do is we'd work the story out together, uh, sometimes in person, but given we live in different cities, not always straightforward, uh, on the phone, Skype, and backwards and forwards and email. Uh, and then... Typically, what, what happened with most of the books is that I would then, once we'd worked out a very comprehensive outline, much more than I would do by myself, and actually one that we would mostly follow as well, so quite different, um, I would write the first chapter to sort of set the tone and so on. And then Sean, who writes very quickly uh, and very well, would write the whole first draft. And then I would rewrite it, and then it would go back to him, and he would rewrite it and we'd do multiple drafts until we were happy with it. And when it's finished and we look at it, I mean, to this day, not, none, neither of us can tell who wrote what. Uh, you can look at a page and uh, we have, in fact, both complimented each other on bits of dialogue or whatever and, and have said, no, oh, I love that, that little bit you wrote. And, and Sean's gone, no, I didn't write that. I'm like, yeah, you, I'm sh I think you did. I'm pretty sure you did. And he said to me, you know, that's a good bit. And I said, no, you wrote that, um, which, is, which is a good outcome, you know, that uh, we, we create a third author between, between the two of us. Um, and it's fun. It's, it was fun, fun to do those books, yeah. I was wondering, because we have one reader who, uh, Rudy Rucker, who's a science fiction writer here in the U.S., and he's quite successful and has his own style and themes and stuff. But he loves to snag other authors that work with him. He does it, I think, for fun. Does he have like a crook and catches them? And sort of like that, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does it with the internet. But uh, so it's, it's just, it's a curious thing. Yeah. You know, I've never been uh, successful at it, but some people uh, can make it work and other, other people want to make it work. Yeah. I think it's very important to choose who you work with. And I also think it's important that it's not the only thing that you have. Because I, I think too, though of course it depends and there's people who, who it does work for, but as a, as a, a wild generalisation, I think if the two of you have something together and that's all, all you have, you don't work on anything else, there's a, so much writing on that that, that, that that really increases the pressure. Whereas yeah. if it's something you enjoy doing with someone else and you're creating you know, good works, uh, it's a fun thing to do and it's, that's great. Um, and that's, that's, that's for both of us has, has been a good thing. Yeah, that's kind of the way he does it yeah. like that. Yeah. But, that that's a, but you do it with an old friend that you've had a... Um, yeah, absolutely, a long, long relationship with. Yeah. And of course the other important aspect is, as almost with anything in writing, is that you also have to make sure that you know contractually it's all set out as well. Yeah, um, it's contractually all set out, so you, know, you have an agreement between the two of you how it's going to work, uh, you know how you how you split the royalties, who who has the final say, all that sort of stuff. Because just in case, um, you just never know. This, yeah, it, it removes the, the the problems that that can happen down the line. Because every now and again you do get writer duos who fall out and. Uh, and uh, you know, pistols at dawn the next day. Whereas, well, if, the whereas if the contract says no dueling, <laughs> then you're fine. Yeah. Well, of course, the contractual things are rare in a lot of science fiction because it 
it's never that successful where it never matters that much. But uh, it's always a good. It's always a, it's always a good idea. I think even when the stakes are low, it's a good idea. You know, yeah. Just to be on the safe side. How are you on the questions? Does anyone else have anything? We have time for three or four more. Yeah, please go ahead. Hi there, I'm Max. So I was wondering if you have a story set in something sort of like France and you have orders of angels and monasteries, there's a lot of either opportunities or risks to make connections to this world's Catholic mythology. And what, did you have a specific plan about doing some of that or staying as far away from it as you could? Or how are you thinking about that parallel? That's a good question. Um, in Angel Mage, there are angels, but there is no God. Um, and that is, that is one way of approaching that particular question. There would be other ways to do it. Um, Catherine Kurtz, I don't know if you know her, Derigny novels, medieval, not, you know, medieval with magic novels, I've always liked very much, um, where the church is, is very important and, and, and God is important and Latin is, is important. Uh, I thought she, she handles that extremely well. And there are other writers who, who've handled uh, the existence or non-existence of God extremely well in this sort of uh, you know, medieval or renaissance uh, uh, sort of allegorical world. I chose, I chose to not to have a church that's based upon the worship of angels, not of God, because that worked better for me in this story. But certainly it's something that needed to be thought about and, and how I was going to either sidestep or, or address that, that, that question. Um, and there is always a question of, uh, there's also the question of um, you know, being careful of people's strongly held beliefs too. Um, I think it's, you gotta be aware of where you're going in that, in that regard. If I was going to write about a Christian kind of church in this in this fantasy world, uh, or, an, or an Islamic one, or uh, you know any any other you know, world religion, it's you've got to bear in mind the, the sort of real world uh, impact of that as well, and it's, it's it's certainly something to to think about. I think I sidestepped it, which is probably the sort of lazy, cowardly way, but hopefully it still works. Hi, I'm Deborah. Uh, there are a number of books that I find myself rereading and rereading again, particularly when I'm having a hard time. And I was wondering if there are any books like that for you that you find yourself touching again and again when you're. Uh, so many. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a huge rereader. I love rereading books. Um, and there are books that I reread every few years and probably will reread every few years forever, I hope, or as long as I can. Um, many of them are my childhood favourites uh, because I find different things in them often when I go back as well as the sort of familiar comfort aspect of them. Uh, there's almost too many to list, but uh, they do include things like The Lord of the Rings, um, uh, C.S. Lewis, Except for the Last Battle, forget about that one. Um, <laughs> going back to Christianity here. Um, and it was all a dream. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, all kinds of, uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe, her historical novels, um, Alan Garner, Weirdstone Brisingerman and so on. Um, lots of um, the sort of science fiction I grew up reading as well, Andre Norton, Ursula Le Guin, uh, Robert Heinlein, 
um, uh, all kinds of people. I mean, particularly, I mean, now Heinlein's not very fashionable now, but his young adult books, uh, which they, the so-called juveniles, uh, are the ones that I reread. I think they're still they're still very good books, and they're very good YA. Yeah, they're great YA books. You know, they're they're brilliant YA books. Um, uh, Susan Cooper, The Dark Is Rising. Uh, so many, <laughs> but yeah, like, tons and tons of, of authors. And also, I find new books that um, I love to reread. And also, I love sometimes big series to reread. I mean, I've read um, I reread Patrick O'Brien's you know, Aubrey Maturin novels probably every three or four years. I you know I love those books, and they are so they're so dense. There's always more stuff to find in those. Not not fantasy, but you know, there it's that brilliant recreation of a world. I love historical novels as, as much. Uh, I think probably for that experience of going into a world that you you can't experience. Sure, it was actually here, but it's it's like a good fantasy. You know, it's, right. it's an invented world. Yeah, and it's that. It's really science fiction. It's technical details. So Backwards. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, two more, and they should both be very, very good. I mean, no pressure. You're next. <laughs> right. Um, you had mentioned being a good reader has been a lot of what's helped you use such provocative, evocative language. Um, I was curious who are some of your favorite nonfiction authors? That's put me on the spot. Um, I read a lot of I read a lot of history and biography, um, and I'm not so good at remembering authors' names in in, in that regard, uh, or in fact remembering anything at all. Sometimes, um, particularly when I've just flown from Australia, um, I do. I love really good biographers. Um, I love great historians. Um, John Julius Norwich, the historian. I love his work. Um, uh, the English Civil War histories by uh, C.V. Wedgwood and her Thirty Years' War history. Uh, you know, wonderful, readable historian. Um, I'd have to look at my shelves really to, to remember this, but there's so many. And also, uh, there's there's all kinds there's all kinds of nonfiction that. It's, that's, a, that's an interesting question to me because it's pointed out to me that I, while I read lots of those books, I don't remember the author's names, whereas I do with fiction. I'm not quite sure what that says. Um, and I actually also, even the books that I go back to reread or look things up, I don't necessarily remember them. Um, one absolutely essential work of nonfiction for a fantasy writer is um, Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable. But um, Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable, um, but but get an, which is online actually. Um, there's lots of different versions of it online. Uh, Bartleby.com has the 1898 edition online, uh, which is is good, but it's nowhere near as satisfying as an actual 1890s edition of it. Um, and you need an old one because the newer ones take out some of the really weird stuff from the old days. So. They're just they're really curious oddities of folklore. Sometimes they've been taken out to put new things in, and the new things are never as interesting as, as the old things. Um, you could almost open Brewer's, Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable at, at a random page and get an idea for a story because there'll be some bizarre thing about how uh, you know, a word that's used to describe uh, the look of a dog's eye in the middle of the night reflected by the moon as, a, as 
told by bandits, you know, or something like that. I mean, I just made that one up, but but that's the kind of stuff that that's in there, or uh, all the little local, uh, particularly British legends, and and but also lots of uh, of classical Greek and Roman myth and so on. Uh, so it, that really is an essential piece of non-fiction for anyone who's interested in, in, in fantasy. But yeah, find, find an old one if you can, uh, as well as looking it up online. Uh, one more and it should be almost as good. <laughs> or better. Hard to be. Hello. Yeah. Um, you talked about how you like to write about places because you'd like to exist within them. Um, so out of all the places that you've written, which one would you like to exist in the most and why? <laughs> well, not necessarily exist in because I'd be afraid of most of them. Um, <laughs> I just like the idea that they would exist somewhere. Well, the, the, great, library, the great library of the Clare uh, would be wonderful, but I would be, I'd, I'd need lots of armed librarians with me at all times, um, which would be cool. Uh, the Abhorson's House, uh, the Abhorson's House I would love. Um, in Angel Mage, um, actually, I'd like the Star Fortress to be real. I mean, and it's based upon various historical uh, geometric fortresses of that, of that kind, but that's, it's an actual working one with all its peculiarities of, of this fantasy world. Um, the, in fact, the, almost anywhere I describe in my books, I'd like to be able to visit, um, even if it was in, in some sort of ephemeral form so I couldn't be done in by whatever happens to be there, which you know, is almost a given in most of my books. The Abhorson's house would be fine, as long as you could actually just get there with that. With that I mean, I, I couldn't do the stepping stones, for example. I mean, you know, that would scare me too much. Possibly not when I wrote at age 26 or whatever, but... I'm, I'm, you know, my knees aren't what they were. I, I, can't, I can't jump over the stones like I used to. This evening's been a treat for me, and I think maybe a treat for Garth yeah, also. Absolutely. But I hope for a treat for you, uh, but we do have to... Um, uh, if people got books they want signed, bring them up, and let's... Um, they're going to dismantle this museum tonight and turn it into a disco, so. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Terry. Thank you. You can subscribe to the SFNSF podcast in iTunes. Just search for SFNSF. We're also on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash SFINSF podcast, all one word, or on somefm.com and click on the podcast link. The SFNSF podcast was produced by Marin McDonnell, recorded and engineered by Rusty Hodge. Thanks for listening.